Welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education. I'm your host, Jill Anderson. Today, we are talking to Jackson Katz, an educator, activist, and author whose work focuses on sexual harassment and gender violence training around the world. He's the co-founder of Mentors in Violence Prevention, one of the longest-running gender violence prevention programs in North America. Welcome, Jackson. Thanks, Jill. It's nice to be with you. It's great to have you on because we have a lot to talk about today considering everything that's been happening over the past few months. Uh, allegations of sexual harassment and insult seems to be in the news every day. The Me Too movement and our ongoing discussions about consent. So knowing all this uh, and that these issues, gender equality, men harassing and assaulting women, and how to disrupt this have been the focus of your career I'm wondering if these prominent men being in the news has changed the conversation in your work as an educator. Um, Yes, it has. I think the biggest shift has been how many people are engaging in the conversation. I mean, for many of us, women and men, we've known for a long, long time how pervasive the issues of sexual harassment and sexual assault and domestic violence and teen relationship abuse and all the other forms of men's violence against women are and have been. But now, because of the high-profile nature of some of the perpetrators and victims, like in Hollywood and elsewhere, there is, and, and the, the, the strong women coming forward on so many different levels to talk about what has happened to them and demanding uh, change, if you will, um, I think that the conversation has gone to, the new, uh, to a new level. So, for example, myself as an activist, both as an educator and as, an, as, as a sort of public activist, um, I've done probably more media in the past six months than in the previous 10 years uh, combined. And I'm saying the same thing, and I've been saying the same thing for 25, 30 years, but people are hearing it in a different way because of the Me Too moment. So in that sense, I think it's elevating the, the work. Um, and it's also, have to, we have to say, you know, I have to say that this is also taking place in the context of a national election where a man who was a serial sexual harasser and arguably abuser of women has been, uh, was elected president running against the first woman candidate ever from the major party to run for president. So, so there's all these political sort of overlay of what's, what's happening on the ground, as well as the Me Too moment and the women's marches and all this other political and social activism. Highlighting all those things that you just mentioned, and it, it feels like we're on this precipice of change or potential change. But one of the things that your work has often pointed out is that this seems to be something that is owned by women, about women, not about men. So I'm wondering what's going on with men in all this, and how do we get them to be more active participants? Well, one, one way is we, we have to define this as a leadership issue for men, and this is a part of my work, both in my you know, scholarship and my writing as my public speaking and everything else. It's, we have to talk about this as a leadership issue for men. This isn't just about individual boys and young men and men who, who you know, cross certain lines and need to be you know, held accountable for that. It's about systemic social change and gender norms change at every level in the society, and men who are in positions of influence, whether it's you know, cultural, political, social, and certainly educational, have, have a platform of, of influence and a responsibility, in my opinion, to uh, figure out how to use whatever influence they have and whatever platform they have to change the sort of underlying 
beliefs and attitudes, attitudes and beliefs that so many people have that help to keep the current system in place. In other words, it's not just individual perpetrators here. We're, we're talking about systemic social problems. The degree of sexual harassment and sexual abuse and, and other forms of gender violence that men perpetrate, that women experience, um, is so pervasive that it's not, it's, it's, just, it's just ignorant, I think, to think about it as one bad apple or a couple of individual monsters who have to be called out or locked up. It's much more um, mainstream than that. And as a result, I think the critical spotlight needs to be on institutional practices, cultural beliefs, and everybody has to figure out what role they can play in helping to change that, especially those of us who are in positions of leadership. And as an educator, my focus is often on you know, college administrators and athletic directors and pr principals of high schools and superintendents of school districts and others who are in a, a position where they can actually make systemic change. Because we're not going to do what we need to do in a, in a world of 8 billion people, one person at a time. We have to do it institutionally and politically. So one of the things that was recently highlighted that I saw you talking out about was the Time's Up movement and uh, Me Too and how Hollywood was, n men were wearing the buttons, but they weren't actually saying anything. Uh, so I'm wondering, how do we change that? How do we make men feel more active or comfortable, I guess, to say something? Well, I'm involved in a campaign right now with the Representation Project based in the Bay Area who's produced the films um, Misrepresentation and The Mask You Live In, which deal with images of women in media and, and how, they, how entertainment media helps to undermine women's sense of themselves as, um, as strong women beyond their ability to be you know, attractive to heterosexual men, that's misrepresentation and mask you live in. The film is about boys and men and the cultural straitjackets that we put on boys and men in the, you know, in a cross race and class and ethnicity and how boys and men struggle with that to try to be whole human beings. The Representation Project has been doing this great work, but they're, they're doing a campaign this year, and I'm in partnership with them, to get men who are going into the um, um, Oscars, in other words, on the red carpet, to get the interviewers to ask them what they're going to do concretely and specifically both to support women and to speak out about um, what men can and should be doing in male culture, trying to influence other men, challenging and interrupting other men's abuse, um, providing leadership to younger men and boys, and get people who are getting winning awards, in other words, winning Oscars, on stage saying something that supports the Me Too moment, the Time's Up campaign, and, and, and beyond that. This is an example of how we need more men to talk about this subject publicly to make it normal to hear this coming from men, to be defining these issues as not just women's issues that good men help out with, but actually as men's issues. And the high profile of the Oscars and other men in the, in the society who have um, the spotlight, if you will, uh, we, need, we, need, we need to make this more um, routine. And right now, up till now, it's really been women's activism, women's energy, which I appreciate because none of this would be happening without that, um, but with a handful of men in the background supporting them. And, and yet men commit the vast majority of sexual harassment, sexual abuse, uh, domestic violence, et cetera. And until men are engaged at all levels, I think we're just talking about cleaning up after the fact. And I think we can do so much better than we're doing. And there's a lot of good men out there who have the potential to be transformative if they were more knowledgeable, if they, if they knew what to say and how to use their in, you know, their power or their authority in constructive ways. So part of it, the process, Jill, is just 
getting into the conversation and getting men engaged in that conversation and thinking about constructive and positive ways that men can engage because a lot of men hunker down in a defensive crouch because they think the only thing they can do is defend themselves against charges both as individual perpetrators but also as men who have, who have stood by or who have participated in male culture in a way that they might not be too proud of. I think men need a, a way to, to act proactively in a constructive and positive fashion, and I think that's part of where we're at in the, in the conversation right now. Tapping into that a little bit, what is the bystander approach, and why is this a big piece of, of your work? Well, I'm actually one of the architects of what's called the bystander approach. Sometimes people use the word bystander intervention, which is a term that I don't really like because it points, because it points people. The word intervention points people to the, to the actual act of aggression, and you need to intervene when you see an act of aggression. And I think what we need um, is, is more, than, more than just reacting to an incident when we see it. Um, but, but actually, I was at the ed school in uh, in the, in uh, 91 92 and I had a professor Ron Slaby Ron Slaby who along with some of his colleagues was looking at an approach and developing an approach to middle school bullying prevention that moved beyond the perpetrator victim binary in other words instead of focusing on the kid doing the bullying and the kid experiencing it they focused on everybody around the kid doing it and everybody around the kid experiencing it and the goal of that was to get everybody in a given peer culture to participate. In other words, get kids to challenge other kids and interrupt other kids' bullying behavior by saying this is not acceptable, not because you're going to get in trouble with the teacher or the principal, but because we in your peer culture don't accept this. And it was to get kids around the kid experiencing the bullying to make it clear to that kid that what's happening to him or her is not okay, it's not cool, and we support you and we'll do whatever we can to help you. And they called that the bystander approach. And what we did when I started the MVP, Mentors and Violence Prevention Program, in 1993, we sort of imported the bystander approach from the middle school bullying world into the sexual assault, sexual harassment, and domestic violence prevention world. And the goal of the bystander approach in the, the gender violence field is to get men who are not themselves acting abusively to challenge and interrupt other men along a continuum, not just at the point of attack, as I've said. It's not just when you see a rape happening or a domestic violence incident in progress, you need to jump in and stop it. This isn't nightclub bouncer training. I don't think that's what we need. I don't think we need just people, you know, deputized, you know, college students or high school students who are deputized to jump in when they see an abusive act takes place. Of course, I think that would be a good thing to do to try to figure out how to intervene safely when you see abuse. But it's much deeper than that. It's about, it's about challenging and interrupting um, attitudes and beliefs that lead to abusive behaviors. It's like it's if you're a guy and you're, you know, hanging out with a group of guys and one guy makes a sexist joke and there's no girls or women present. It's like, what do you say? Do you challenge and interrupt that sexist joke or do you laugh along or you say nothing? And if, if you do say nothing, in a sense, aren't you consenting to that sexism? And don't we know that sexual harassment and abuse and violence has a cultural context. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's, again, very similar to racism. If you're a white person and you yourself don't act out in racist ways, but you don't challenge other white people who do make racist jokes or comments, then in a sense, isn't your silence a form of consent and complicity? The bystander approach is all about trying to figure out how to break that process of of complicity and challenging men and women, and I've been focusing on the men, but we work with men and women and people who don't, who don't identify as either men or women, in other words, all of us, to not be silent in the face of abusive behavior around us or the attitudes that lead to that behavior. And 
it's, we started in 1993. The MVP program was, the first, as I said, the first program to employ this bystander approach. Now it's completely mainstream and to the point where it, it's actually gone a little too mainstream because now a lot of people employ bystander training that's emptied of its social justice and feminist foundations, and it's, it's just become, like I said, a glorified nightclub bouncer approach. But I think that the best education around gender violence and the most effective by far in working with men is having honest conversations about how cultural attitudes and beliefs about manhood, and again, intersecting with race and ethnicity and sexual orientation and everything else, how those attitudes and beliefs um, both contribute to perpetration and impede, and in many in many cases, impede men's and young men's likelihood of challenging or interrupting abuse. So, talking about all this stuff openly and honestly in a in a in dialogue in a dialogic educational setting, rather than a PowerPoint presentation or a, or an online training course, having really gritty dialogue, interactive, messy dialogue in the educational space is to me where the real transformative work happens, and it's not happening enough. And the reason why it's not happening enough is not because we don't have the ideas. It's because we haven't had the political will in colleges and high schools and other places to actually engage in that kind of um, challenging and transformative educational practice. What do you hear most often from educators? I think there's a lot of educators who themselves haven't figured out how to navigate some of these spaces. I mean, obviously, there's, there's educators who are exemplary and integrate, whether, whether it's in their um, curricular materials or in their extracurricular kind of activities, they integrate these kinds of subject matters. Um, but I think a lot of teachers and a lot of educators don't really know what exactly to do. And I think they're an underutilized resource. And I can tell you one thing, Jill, a lot of my, myself and my colleagues in MVP Strategies, my organization that does training at all kinds of different levels, when we go into a high school, we're often brought in to teach the, the um, pedagogy of the Mentors and Violence Prevention model, and, and, and we're, t we're often training teachers who are going to be in supervisory roles with the students who are trained to work with younger students because it's called Mentors in Violence Prevention. So we, we generally, in high schools, train juniors and seniors to work with incoming ninth graders because not, we're not talking about an adult authority figure leading a discussion with the younger people. It's, it's a slightly older brother, older sister relationship to the target population. But what happens when we start working with faculties and teachers and coaches and others who are, um, who are in supervisory roles with the kids who are involved in this process as mentors, what you often find is that in the adult peer culture, there's all kinds of issues that are either festering or that have caused problems. In, in the adult peer culture, in other words, while we go in talking, trying to help the adults be mentors to the younger kids, we actually spend a lot of time talking about dynamics with it between men and women, between men, between women, in the faculties, in the teaching uh, sort of uh, spaces and the peer culture. And if the, the, the thesis here is that if you can't have your own house in order, in other words, if you as a man or a woman or men or women aren't yourselves figuring out how to deal with each other in, in, in effective ways, in a, in a gender-diverse, sexual-diverse, racially and ethnically diverse you know, uh, faculty or society, then you're not going to be as effective in working with the young people. And I would say there's plenty of middle-aged men, and I'm one of them, who is still trying to figure out all of this. Like it's, it, the, the transformations that have been happening in our culture over the past 50 years in the gender and sexual realm 
are incredible, and they're incredibly inspiring on many levels, but it's caused lots of disruption and uncertainty and, you know, new rules, people trying to apply new rules to old patterns, and, and you have all kinds of factors that are impeding, you know, forward progress. And so I would say one of the things that educators really quickly learn or quickly share with us is that they want help, not just on how to work with younger people, but how to themselves interact with each other in respect and challenge and interrupt abuse when they see it and and all the constraints on them because there's hierarchies in schools just like there's hierarchy I mean among the, the professionals just like there's hierarchies among students and young people and and it, some guys for example some faculty members feel intimidated by other faculty members including their peers and they don't say anything because they they might not like or appreciate the way that this man this other this fellow colleague is acting but they don't feel licensed to say anything, they don't feel um, permission, and they feel like it's awkward. Some of the same things that a 15-year-old boy would say about why he doesn't challenge his, you know, guy friend who's just made a sexist comment about girls. So I think it's, it's, it's interesting, to say the least, when you start talking to adults about this subject, using a similar pedagogy as you do with the kids, but you're doing it with scenarios that, that um, reflect some subtle differences in the in the in the level of peer culture and maturity level and um, and life experience. So knowing that we may have listeners with young children or even teenagers, how can they talk about these issues? Well, this is certainly an ever-present challenge for parents. I'm a parent of a 16-year-old boy. Um, I think. Parents of daughters and parents of sons have different um, conversations or need to have different conversations. I think, I think it's um, naive to think we can have this sort of live in some sort of gender-neutral universe as if all our kids are affected in the same way. I think, it's, I think that's very naive. I think there's big differences between being the parent of a daughter and being the parent of a son. One thing I can say is a lot of parents of sons are struggling to figure out what to say to their kids and their, their boys. And, and one of the things that I think a lot of people do uh, end up doing is talking to them about, you know, respecting girls or respecting other boys and, and, and sexually in other ways and not crossing certain lines and making sure you know the person you're with if you're going to engage in sexual relations is consenting. I appreciate all that. I think what we need to do with boys, however, is more than that, which is it's not just about your behavior with a given person, like a girl or a boy. It's about your behavior within your peer culture. What do you say to other boys? How do you, when you, when your friend is treating his girlfriend disrespectfully, what do you do? What's your responsibility to her, to him, to yourself? Because I think we need to teach boys that it's not just about their individual behavior, but it's their participation in the cultural practices of boy culture or young men's culture. Again, it's very similar with racism. Would we say to white kids, we want, you know, would white parents who are concerned that they're white children might act out in racist ways is the only thing that we need to be concerned with that they might themselves be racist or do we want them to be white people and white young people who take a stance and challenge and interrupt other white people who are acting in racist ways so i think we need to expand the conversation and with our daughters it's not just about protecting themselves of course safety and bodily and sexual integrity is paramount but it's also how can you as a young woman 
support other women, challenge and interrupt abusive behavior when you see it, whether it's by men or by women, doing it safely and smartly, but what, what role can you play in your peer culture in the influence that you have to change the norms that underlie these abuses? So it's not just about focusing on boys as perps and girls as victims or, or boys as victims and girls as perps. It's about everybody. How can we play a safe and smart role in changing um, the norms that are so toxic and that are contributing to these ongoing problems. Right. It sounds like there is so much work that just needs to be done. You know, I want to thank you so much, Jackson, for talking about this important issue. For people listening who want to go find out more, I know that you uh, have a lot of tips out there and tools and, and books and things. Where, can, where should they go to get more information or to follow you? Thank you. I, I have two websites, which is my personal website, which is jacksoncats.com. That's my personal website, and my organization's website is called MVP, MVP Strategies. That's my gender violence prevention education organization, and that, that website is mvpstrat.com, mvpstrat.com. So there's plenty of information in both of those places for people who are wanting more um, engagement with matters. Right. Wonderful. Thank you so much again. Thank you so much, Jill. This is the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Thanks for listening.